Before we get started, I do make a note in the episode towards the beginning that there may be some conversation that includes explicit language or descriptions of violence. That does come up in this episode, so I just want people to be aware before they get into it. This may not be the episode to listen to with children in the room or if you're in a vulnerable place. So, listener beware. Also, because I don't have a fancy recording studio, this does get a little echoey because I'm recording in a room with multiple people, so I have to move the microphone, and you can sometimes hear my chair creaking. But other than that, I think it's a pretty good episode, and I think you'll enjoy. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm Hallie Harris, and I'm your host. And today I have with me special guest Marie, who has extensive experience in the Department of Corrections in Washington State. So we're going to pick her brain. I also have dear friend of the show, Katie, who is also a social worker and has experience as a DMHP. So perhaps in a moment you can explain what that means, but welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Katie, can you please tell us what a DMHP is? Or as they were formerly called, DMHPs. Yes, they were formerly DMHP. Now they are DCR. Prior to that, they were CDMHP. (laughs) (laughs) Many names, all the same hat. So they are designated crisis responders in the community. They're designated by county. And they are dispatched through Volunteers of America to respond in the community to folks in crisis, in mental health crisis, uh, typically, you know, very severe, and to assess and determine if they need and meet criteria under the law for psychiatric hospitalization whether that be voluntary or involuntarily, but the role of the DMHP is to assess for that and determine if they do qualify, they have the right to detain them to a psychiatric inpatient unit to receive the support that they need. That was a very thorough explanation, thank you. (laughs) And Marie, uh, oh, before we get really into this, because I feel like once we get talking, we're gonna get into it real quick. Just a caveat for the listeners, we're going to be talking about a variety of things. There may be some discussion of the death penalty, there may be discussion of sexual assault, there may be discussion of a lot of different traumatic experiences. So I just want to warn people that because this particular topic can be sensitive for many different reasons, um, proceed at your own risk, if you will. So Marie, welcome. So excited to have you here. And can you please just give us maybe... A short overview of your experience within the Washington State Department of Corrections. Yeah, so I spent a little over eight years working for Washington DOC and actually just recently left, like a little over a month ago. Took a different role somewhere else. But so I was a therapist for max custody individuals, so the most dangerous mentally ill individuals in the state. And then I also worked with mentally ill sex offenders um, as a primary therapist. And then my last role is I technically worked for headquarters as a quality assurance agent, but I provided a quality assurance for our risk and needs assessment that is administered to everybody under our jurisdiction. And what are your credentials so people understand what you mean by therapist? Sure, so I have a master's in clinical psychology Um, with a concentration in forensics. Okay. So all that really means, like, compared to master's in counseling, because a lot of therapists have master's in counseling, uh, my master's in clinical psych means that I can perform psychological tests as long as it's under a licensed psychologist. Mm -hmm. So I have a background in testing that the average therapist might not have. Okay. Because I I was set to get a PsyD. And after two years in my master's program and not a single break between college and master's, I was like, I am so burnt out at 24. I needed a break from life. Yeah. And my master's has done really well for me in getting the jobs I wanted. So I didn't need to get a doctorate. Nice. Same. Cheers. Cheers Cheers. to that. Cheers to that. I want to cheers on that one. (laughs) Ooh, that made a really nice sound. Mm -hmm. There's your new sound, pal. 
So what brought you from your master's then? Did you go straight into Department of Corrections or did you choose something else and then what got you there, if so? So technically I took a year off after my master's and I moved to Hawaii. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I lived on Oahu for a year and took a year off from life. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody in their you know mid-20s who can say that they did that, so I, I, I jumped on that opportunity. And then, nope, this, so moving to Washington State, I'm an East Coastener, born in... We'll forgive you. Yeah, I know. I try anyway. I have to forgive myself. (laughs) Uh, Born and raised, both my bachelor's and my master's are from the East Coast. And so then after a year off from life on Oahu, I was like, all right, I always wanted to live in Seattle. Let's let's just caveat that with, I don't actually live in Seattle and I never have, Um, but... It's pretty much Seattle surrounded by the rest of Washington State, and that's just how we tell people where we live. <laughs> that's true. At least I do. They're like, oh, where do you live? And I'm like, Seattle. Yeah. Um, Honestly, no one else really knows where anything is. So. Right. Particularly if you say Washington, people are like, oh, D.C. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, Washington State. Uh-huh. So I moved here at 25. Sorry, 26. And then, nope, got a job over the phone. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Went to Department of Corrections and moved here. Hadn't even seen my apartment. And so this was kind of my like first career. Wow. Out the gate. Yeah. Straight for Department of Corrections. And when I interviewed for them, <laughs> they asked me which custody level I wanted to work in. And I'm embarrassed by the way I responded to this question in the interview. But I had said, I want to work for Max Custody. It sounds... Um, Thrilling, for lack of a better word, that is legit what I said. <laughs> and someone looked at me, who ended up being my boss later, goes, "Um, some days are are thrilling, sure." I mean, I think that's very fair. In my mid twenties, which feels like a lifetime ago, I definitely remember having an obsession with the macabre and with criminal defendants and serial killers and all of that. I mean, I watched every serial killer documentary. Yeah. Well, this I, was I've a- definitely slowed down on that in my older <laughs> years, but I get, especially in that age range, why that would be fascinating learning. Yeah. Forensic psych. This was the height of like all the CSIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, criminal minds was huge. I mean, I used to want to be a profiler, right? Sure. That was the dream job working for the Bureau and I have two more years to potentially apply, but that will likely never happen. Thirty-seven's <laughs> a cutoff, and I'm like, "Yep, that's not likely to happen in the next twenty-four months." So no Clarice for you. What no, you okay. la Clarice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no Silence of the Lambs for this one. All right, I mean, all right. I did have some Silence of the Lambs moments, though. I mean, let's get into it. Yeah. Right, because we're all here for the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Yeah. So the first, like, and I did. I called it the Silence of the Lambs moment. Uh, I worked with a lifer in max custody. So a lifer is someone who's life without parole. And so the state used to have two different forms of that. We used to call it like life without and life de facto. Mm. And de facto meant like you were sentenced enough years, we knew you would you would likely die, right? Okay. If you were given 100 years, you're going to, so your life without de facto. Okay. And then there are people who are actually truly sentenced life without the ever possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked with somebody who was considered life de facto, and I'll get into why he ended up being de facto. So um, actually, if I could just pause for a please. second, hold de facto. Maybe go back and start with why or how therapy gets involved with prisoners, because I don't get the sense that every prisoner have, has mm-hmm. access to mental health. That's so good, can you clarify question. that? Absolutely. So um, similar to the real world, right? We have inpatient and outpatient prisons. Um, oh. Yeah. That's so, new. I don't know that yeah. I knew that either. Yeah. What so, are outpatient prisons? So outpatient is just like... Is that like work release? No. Probation? It could be. Okay. So, no. Probation is a completely different demon. So okay. we've got... we Within the Department of Corrections... You have to start at the baby level. All right. right. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple of steps back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're back to de facto. These babies are like, so you get arrested. I know, right? I just want to tell you my best prison story ever. I'm like chomping at the bit. Um, so within the Department of Corrections, we've got, you know, we've got community corrections, which is what you would consider like probation and parole. We just don't call it that in our state. And then you've got the prison division, which is obviously like prisoners, people who are incarcerated. And there's like a reentry division as well. So that would be like work release. Okay. And um, so in the prison division, I'm assuming there's like the people that get 365 and less. And then there's the people that get like the state pen, like 
the difference between prison and jail or whatever. Yep. As so, commonly referred to. Yeah. So actually, um, so I worked for a state prison. So that is anybody who gets more than a year and a day okay. as a sentence. Gotcha. Um, which is a common, uh, you know, misperception among layman's. Uh, and so people are often always, even my dad is like, oh, you work in jail. And I'm like, dad, I work in prison. Right. And he's like, whatever, same thing. I'm like, it's not the same thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, jail or county. County corrections is a completely different state agency. Oh, goodness. They get paid a little bit more than us normally, which is kind of just funny how, like, money is distributed by legislation because we're all doing practically the same job. But county corrections would be jails, so you're getting anything less than a year sentence. And state corrections, uh, so prison, is anything a year plus a day. Okay. And then so out in the real world, people will get mental health certain ways. So in prison. Mm-hmm. So within prison, right, because I can't speak to county. So within prison, we have certain facilities in our state. So we have 14 male prisons, I believe, uh, currently. Oh, um, I didn't know that either. Yeah. And then we have two female prisons. And <clears throat> I could be wrong. I might need to check on this, but 14 sounds right in my brain. But of the 14 prisons, only two offer what we would consider like inpatient. And so what that's called is actually an RTU level of care or residential treatment unit level of care. Now, the more you talk, the more questions I'm going to have. And we're <laughs> going to get to that story, I okay. promise. Please, keep asking. <laughs> so, I feel like there's got to be a distinction between the people that go to prison and need residential inpatient care mm-hmm. versus the people that maybe, from again, from my layman's perspective, not knowing anything, Yeah. the people that get... I'm going to send you to a psychiatric, you were declared not sane to whatever, you're going to a state institution. So that's not the same as resident inpatient. No. So in our state, I think, and it's similar to Canada's system, we do NGRI, I'm going to butcher that acronym. Um, So not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh yes. NGRI. Um, And so if somebody is ever deemed that within our state, Mm -hmm. they go to a well, on my side, right, they go to Western State Hospital, and that's where they potentially serve their whole sentence and or they stay long enough to gain competency to then stand trial and eventually be transferred into our care. Okay. So back to resident and patient. Yeah. So I did work at an RTU um, residential treatment unit, which is a special offender unit in Monroe, Washington, and... In the prison system, we have these codes, and it's it's going to get way too muddy for me to tell you all of them, but we have something called an S code. And an S code is your overall standard of mental health. And so anybody who, they range from zero, meaning you haven't been formally assessed yet, uh, <laughs> and then it's one to five, and five being the highest. And they can change at any given moment, similar to how we manage our mental health, right? Like okay. someone can be severely mentally ill and off their meds and be a five. And we get them on med management and working with talk therapy and all these things. And then they may be reduced to a three or a two. But anybody who's at a three or higher is potentially looked at for a residential treatment unit. Okay. And so I, yep. So I only worked with, again, I was at the residential treatment unit. I worked with severely mentally ill and in max custody, you're there because you did something to hurt yourself or others mostly others. It's mostly either assaulting a staff member or assaulting another inmate that garnered you a max custody assignment. Because we have all these different custody levels, right? We've got minimum to max. And a maximum custody, people always say, oh, you lost enough custody points. Now you're assigned. Now you're maximum custody. Max custody is an assignment. People at headquarters have to like look at that case and say, oh no, you did something so egregious. We need to put you in a maximum custody placement. Is that within the residential treatment unit? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So That's I. That's not like maximum security that we would normally think of. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny. I'm sorry. Sure I'm asking so no, many questions. No, please. And I'm just going to ramble. So we're drinking, clearly. <laughs> um, you know, and the only prison thing that I've ever watched that got it halfway right, and you're going to laugh, is Orange is a New Black. Okay. And they got they got a camp setting or a minimum security unit down pat. Like, they have mastered that. That's probably one of the best minimum custody or camp setting things within, you know, fiction that I've seen done well. 
but even when they go to the shoe, in there were air quotes there. I don't know what a shoe is. <laughs> so in Orange Is the New Black, if I'm remembering it correctly, oh, I'm like, what does shoe stand for? Um, it's it's their max custody. I, okay. I don't remember what that stood for. Um, shoe syndrome has become this like massive thing talked about in American Corrections about, oh, we're putting people on lockdown for too long and they're getting shoe syndrome. That is not currently like founded in research. But something that came from a TV show is now vernacular in the corrections places? Well, and I think it was already mm. out there. Okay. And then Orange is the New Black took it and was like, oh, we're going to call it the shoe and we're going to re- reference shoe syndrome. And again, I spent three years in max custody and I can speak to both sides of it, right? I can play devil's advocate and tell you it's a really dark place to work and it would be a shit dark place to live. But I'll also sit there and say, like, I support a lot of what Washington um, state corrections does so all right have you explained enough of the rabbit holes i just took us down to come back to de facto because <laughs> i don't want to forget about that yeah so okay the person that i worked with he was down for like you I, said you were going to explain de facto i don't think we ever got to that yeah so i'm going to explain okay. it as it pertains to this human being gotcha. so he was down for let's say 30 years he committed Two additional, sorry, no. He committed an additional offense while in prison and got 50 years added to his already sentence. Ooh, wow. I know. Okay. And I, I can tell this one. But, like, he, because he got so many years added, he became life de facto because it, it would mean that he would release from prison at, like, 112. Gotcha. Um, so while he was never actually sentenced life without the possibility of parole... He was given so many years, we know he'll die there. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's what de facto means, but we've kind of taken away that term, and now we just, we call everybody LWOP. So, life without parole. Okay. Um, So, they're LWOPed. Okay. So, is the next... No, you're perfect. Now we're to the nitty gritty. I feel, I feel like we've gotten through. We've got our foundation. Yeah, yeah. We needed that foundational base oh, to know God. what you're talking about. God, I could probably talk about this for six hours. <laughs> I we won't. To... Don't worry. I know. I, used... I mean, we might. I used to teach academies, too, for the state. So um, I've taught a lot of things. I used to teach suicide prevention for Department of Corrections. Um, I taught working with mentally ill individuals, working with sex offenders. And then I ran an academy... That was called the Case Management Academy, but it was to train, we don't call them parole officers, we call them community correction officers in our state, but I always call them parole officers when I'm talking to everybody else because <laughs> nobody knows what a CCO is. But yeah, so I used to train parole officers, and then inside the prison, a parole officer is called a classification counselor. And so I used to train all the new classification and parole officers around the state, and that was kind of my role for the last three years. So... Yeah, no, I could I could lay a foundation for days. <laughs> well, I mean, this might have to be a series, but I want to make sure we get back to the story yeah. we really want to tell. So, have you know, it. it's my it it's my favorite story because it was my first Silence of the Lambs story, and my dad's favorite question to anybody he meets is, "Tell me your best story." So, of course, he's just so proud that his daughter worked in prison, but he used to always refer to it as, "My daughter's in prison." And then I wanted to throat punch him every time he said it. Because I'm like, Dad, I'm not in prison. I work in prison and there's a huge distinction. And I know you want to tell a joke that way. Stop. Stop telling that joke, Dad. So anyway, my first Sons of the Lambs moment with this individual. So he committed two crimes while incarcerated. One was in county jail. um, And one was about eight years later while he was housed in prison. And... The incident in county, he killed a cellmate Mm. in front of two other cellmates. And he went detail for detail describing how he murdered somebody and then got up afterwards to take a shower. And I'd asked a question. Well, what was the point of taking a shower? And he goes, because I was covered in blood. It was the most antisocial conversation I've ever had with a human being. And he said it so matter-of-factly, like, duh, I'm covered in blood. <laughs> I needed to bathe myself. And for the layman, when you say antisocial, you're referring to antisocial personality disorder? Correct. Okay. Yeah, we tend to use, well, 
uh, it's a colloquial term now, right? That people say, oh, I'm antisocial because I stayed home all weekend. And what they really mean is that they were asocial. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or introverted. Right. Or... Every every therapist in the world, when anybody uses antisocial wrong, they're like, hmm, that's all I can And to be fair, I mean, I love Silence of the Lambs. There is no more powerful short-term experience than Anthony Hopkins in the seven minutes or whatever it was that he was on screen. And I will, lo- I will stop and watch it every single time. Absolutely. But... Katie needs to be slapped because she's never been seen it. <laughs> what? I was just mouthing that to her. <laughs> okay, well, like we, need, never to, we need to watch the trilogy then. Because there's a prequel called Red Dragon, which is equally fucking good. Oh, it's joy. pretty good. I don't like it as much as Silence of the Lambs, but it's pretty good. My point, though, is that I do want to acknowledge, as I am in social work, that there has been a lot of pushback on Silence of the Lambs because of its representation of what might be for the trans community. So I do want to oh. acknowledge that there has been a lot of pain and anguish with some people because they feel like this is, you know, representing trans people as murderous, crazy people when, you know, in my mind, as I'm watching the movie, I'm enjoying it as an individual being a crazy person, not a person that likes to cross-dress or as a trans person. So mm-hmm. now that I'm done with all of those caveats, great story. That is yeah. creepy AF. <laughs> Actually, you can say fuck. I don't care. You can swear on this podcast. Oh, my goodness. Oh, good, because I already have. That is... Yeah, I I actually, when I was in therapy, asked my therapist, how would you know if you were sitting across from someone like that? And he was explaining that it's, you know, your skin crawls. Like, there's not a way to describe it. You feel it. The hairs on the back of your neck stand straight the fuck up. Yeah. So, Katie and I, this is kind of a side tangent. We were just talking about, um, like, workout watches. And I was telling her that back in the day when they kind of first hit the market, I upgraded to the heartbeat one because I wanted to know if certain inmates like spiked my heart rate. Oh, interesting. Um, and so I, I don't remember any like definitive human being doing that, but I wanted to be able to track it. And I, so I should preface that story that I said with like sitting across from someone describing murdering another human being. Uh, he was in full restraints. And so what that means is that he has ankles, so ankles and wrist restraints, and he's wearing what's called a waist chain. And then there's a chain that slips underneath the waist chain that connects his wrists to his ankle. Um, And then his waist chain is connected to the table that we're sitting at, and it's called a spider table. So it's just like a tabletop, and then it has like six metal chairs that kind of... is connected to it. So he was in full restraints when I was speaking to him. So you felt safe, essentially. Yeah. So that's your own physical person. For sure. That's a perfect way to put it. I mean, again, in max custody, in the, in the facility that I worked in, they were in full restraints. Anytime you met individually with a, uh, an individual, but they did graduate on this max custody program that I worked on. It was a step program. And when they got to the highest step, and it was like seven when I quit max custody, I think it's now five. But when you got to the highest step, you got to be out of restraints around peers. Um, So other inmates could like co-mingle in what we call a day room together. But anytime they met individually with um, a staff member, they were in full restraints. And that's in the day room, what I just described with with them, with the, the waist chain attached to the table. I've also met with people in an interview room where their hands are behind their backs and their waist chain is connected to the wall behind them. So very much what you would see in, you know, like fictitious depictions of prison. Like some of that stuff is legit. <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff they show on prison that has anything to do with like visiting is probably very wrong. <laughs> My sister made me watch something once, and I don't even remember what it was, but she's like, is this what it's like? And I go, no, they just pat-searched a six-year-old. We don't do that. <laughs> I'm like, that that seems extremely traumatic. I'm not going to put hands on a child, and no visiting staff would either. They'll send you through a metal detector, sure, but they're not going to pat-search a, a child visiting their parent. Mm-hmm. They're already experiencing enough trauma, probably during the visit. So there is a lot of depictions that are just completely false, but in max custody, they, I mean, they are in the orange jumpsuit 
that is indicative of maximum custody. And then, yes, they are fully restrained. And anytime, I've only ever had one person slip out of restraints accidentally, at least it seemed like an accident, I just walked to the door. And I got buzzed out by the booth, and I walked out, and I told the officers, and I said, hey, I need you to go restrain so-and-so. They slipped out of their ankle restraints, or one of them popped. He didn't even slip out of it. It popped open. Um, and there's a locking device attached to cuffs. And, and you're like, no way. <laughs> I know. I was like, but I mean, it was what's called Brutus cuffs. And so Brutus cuffs are used for people who are a bit larger. Um, and Brutus cuffs just don't always work as well as standard cuffs. So he kind of was like kicking. I, I don't know if he went to go move or something, but he like kicked his ankle against something and the cuff just popped open. And in that moment, he told me, right? He he said, my cuff just opened. And I said, oh, Okay. Well, give me a second. And I was in the middle of teaching an art class, actually. So it was him and multiple other offenders. And I walked outside and I said, hey, so-and-so's cuff just popped open. Can someone go and resecure it? Two officers came in, resecured it, and art group went on. How do you do an art class if everyone's handcuffed? <laughs> so when your wrists... That's a great question. I have so many questions. <laughs> so when your wrists are restrained, and then it has like a metal chain that comes through the, the waistband, you have about a foot foot and a half worth of movement and motion like upper body yeah motion. and so i did teach an art class where we did a lot of origami i'm an origami enthusiast <laughs> so i'm like we're gonna do what i want to do sorry guys <laughs> i'm gonna tie it into your mental health don't worry um you fold that butterfly <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you the history of origami cranes and so yeah no they they could move enough to do art i have so many questions <laughs> please She's just sitting over there. She can't even say anything because her head's like spinning. I know. <laughs> I didn't even know I had this much to say about corrections. I'm, not, I'm fascinated by the words spilling out of my own mouth. <laughs> oh um, God. I, I do you have Katie? Do you have any questions? I know you guys oh. have probably talked at length about this, and I'm new to this conversation. I mean, it, it's fascinating to hear that side. I mean, this side of it because just you know everything that goes into. The safety, the security, you know, the the processes. Because I think, so as a community mental health person, I, the people in jail that I saw, if I wasn't in the community seeing people just in the community or in the hospital, jail was a little bit of a different setting, but there wasn't nearly, obviously, as much restraint and protocol. Sometimes when I would interview someone, they'd be behind the plexiglass mm-hmm. or... Or we'd be in a room together and they'd just have simple cuffs on or something. But it was a lot more in my mind of trying to anticipate all of the outcomes (laughs) that could be from this interaction. I mean, if I'm in a hospital room with someone, you know, I'm closest to the door. You know, I'm making sure there's something between us. You know, I mean, you've got someone in complete psychosis, unmedicated, in crisis. I mean, that person's so unpredictable and I'm just sitting there (laughs) with my clipboard, you know? (laughs) Situational awareness. It is. It exists everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm just, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to this, thinking about just these very different situations and honestly how valuable it is to be able to be in that setting so that you can eliminate some of that need for situational awareness in your mind, like kind of reduce some of the intensity so that you can actually engage in your therapeutic session. For sure. Which is crazy because I'm sitting here not having any experience with that and thinking, how do you get to that place of therapeutic alliance if they, if the power dynamic is so extreme. It's so extreme. You already have a power dynamic as a therapist and now not only are they in cuffs, like handcuffs Mm -hmm. on the table like you'd see in like Jack McCoy's interrogation room, But they're fully, like, shackled to the floor. Mm. Well, and how do you even get them to engage? So the the carrot, if you will, right, is most people don't like being in full restraints and they don't like being on lockdown for that many hours a day. So if you want to graduate max custody, and let me, like, I was thinking while Katie was talking that there's a difference between segregation and maximum custody assignment. So let me explain that really quickly. Segregation is if you did something, you screwed up, right? We infracted you, and you you go to segregation because of a behavior. It's usually 30 days or less. 
that's a, that's a 23 hour lockdown. You are not programming. There is no requirement on you other than to serve your time and then go back to your assigned unit. And when you say programming, you mean engage in therapy? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So when I worked on an intensive treatment unit, so these are people who were assigned maximum custody, potentially due to an assault of a staff member or assault of another offender. So they are there, assigned max custody, and they understand that the expectation is that they participate in treatment in some aspect. It is an ITU, an intensive treatment unit. And so that means either engaging in individual therapy with us, which we can't force that, so they don't have to talk to us, but they have to at least engage in, we used to call them, ooh, I'm gonna blank on the acronym actually, because it's been years since I've worked in Max probably like five or six years, actually. That was my first job with corrections. But well, well, clearly, because it was very fascinating it was, and thrilling. It thrilling. Yeah. I want to work there. Right. Um, I know. I was like, thrilling? Shut up. <laughs> I am the worst interviewer known to man. Uh, I like. I, it's worked out well for you thus far, dude. It has. <laughs> I mean, even, even my first boss at the corrections, like, her and I are best friends now. And she's like, you didn't interview that bad. And I'm like, well, I mean, thank Thanks for hiring me, but uh, I have lots of critiques. Um, you know, thrilling. So they used to, so they don't have to, they never have to engage in therapy, right? We don't force that anywhere in the community, in prison. Of course not. Um, if you are in a residential treatment unit, though, you're there and the expectation is that you do participate in therapy. If you refuse, we'll potentially ship you somewhere else, right? Because there's a level of court order, right? Because there is court order like court-mandated therapy for folks in the community. That is something that exists. For sure. But you're saying that when people are in prison and to some level or degree, there is the autonomy there to not have to engage in therapy. Absolutely. We I'm have a consent Because I don't think we ever got back to how people access therapy in yeah. prison. So, yeah. yeah. No, they absolutely have to consent. They have to consent to treatment. If they don't want to consent to individual individualized therapy we can do case management with them but it won't involve any therapy which I even to this day have never really understood the difference if I'm just being completely honest like I worked with somebody who I would simply just talk about hey what are some goals you have for yourself and how can correctional staff help you meet those goals that was like the bare minimum of what I considered case management. But there's obviously like therapeutic skill that goes into navigating that. Yeah. And so there were these moments where I would just be like, oh shit, that sounded too much like therapy. Rain it back in. Because I didn't have their consent to do therapy. Mm. And so it was just interesting. It was always goal oriented. You know, some motivational interviewing was thrown in. Uh, But anytime it became like, I was using too much CBT or DBT or like ACT or, you know, family systems. I'd be like, okay, rain it back. Those are different. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Those are the different orientations you can use. Yeah. So that part was really difficult for me. And most of my clients consented. I had one individual who didn't. And then we shipped him out. I was like, okay, well, if you don't want to consent to therapy and you don't think you need it, they weren't in max custody. They were in medium custody. So SOU, where I worked, the special offender unit, had max, close, and medium to minimum. And those are just different custody levels that all, you know, as you graduate to a lower custody level, you get more freedoms, right? And the whole goal of corrections in our state in particular, I can't speak to other states, but it's always to get you to a lower level of custody to increase like individual responsibility. All right, something that mimics as close to the community as we can get before we send you on your merry way. Right. I mean, honestly, we should have just started with Corrections 101 because <laughs> I don't think most people know well, there's any just of this. so much in it, apparently. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah. probably not to you because you were knee-deep in it, but... But I find it thrilling. Yeah, thrilling. <laughs> thrilling. That's going to be the... Sorry, I know. I'm going to use it for the rest of the day. <laughs> That's going to be the, the, the quote of You can't the, hand me that gem and not expect me to drop it every five minutes. Sounds thrilling. <laughs> I could have said any other word, and that's the word I chose. But I'm also the person that's like, this is a lovely dinner. I like the word lovely, thrilling... You know, I think all listeners can relate <laughs> to saying stupid things in interviews. <laughs> oh, fuck. Tell me about it. Or just day-to-day life. Or just day-to-day life. Yep. All the time. Yeah. All day, every day. 
No, it's good. <sighs> this is interesting, though. Like, it's, I mean, it is. It's very different, and it, yeah, also not having, like, the huge understanding of the whole correctional system in general. There is so, so much about it that I think misconceptions yeah. are oh, out yeah. there for sure. I mean, obviously, media portrays it in a very, very different light. Yeah. I mean, that's the struggle, right? We all watch Law & Order, CSI, mm, yeah. all of these shows where even Orange is the New Black, we think that's how it is. And unless you've had a family member or someone that you know that works there mm -hmm. tell you otherwise, you don't know. Well, and then For I think sure. you throw in the whole, um, the twist of mental health in the prison system. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's a whole world unto its own, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's... Oh, there's there's so much public opinion, right, around corrections as a whole. And then you start getting into the nitty gritty of, like, mentally ill corrections and, and like, I mean, I could speak about involuntary medications and people would lose their ever-loving minds, oh, such right? such a conversation. But, I mean, nothing, we try to make it as autonomous as possible, right? People absolutely have their ability to consent to treatment, their ability to engage. The Silence of the Lambs guy has had multiple moments when I was his primary therapist where he would just, like, shut down and be like, I'm done with therapy for today. And I'm like, okay. And that's respected, like, mostly because I don't want to ruin a therapeutic alliance. And I'm, so he's one of my most fascinating and favorite clients in the world because he was very engaged in therapy. He'd been down in max custody for five years. So he was, he was literally jumping through every hoop we had to get out. And so he was like, what to get out of max therapy, not to get out of the prison because it's de facto. Correct. Yeah. So he wanted to get out of maximum custody which I haven't even gotten to, like, why he was originally assigned Max Custody. Well, which I was going to say, because he's the one that did this, that killed this other person. So, so like, he killed somebody in county jail. Yeah. So, different different entity than us uh, for state corrections. And so, in county, he killed someone in front of two other people. He was sentenced to additional years because of that murder. But he was having a psychotic break during all of that. That doesn't even speak to the heinous crime he committed to get into county jail, which was also fairly heinous and was an attempted murder. Thankfully, that victim lived. And I can I can get as nitty and gritty as you want, but so eight years passed from that murder in county. Yeah, and then the, what was that one? So, and this was a huge fuck up for us, and I'm just going to own it. Uh, I don't even know why I'm owning it. I didn't work for corrections yet, but like everybody has to just own that this was a huge fuck up. We gave this guy a celly, a roommate. He should have never, ever had a roommate given that he killed one of his previous cellmates. I don't give a shit how well you've done in life. Up to that point, how much you've rehabilitated, we should have never given him another celly. Unfortunately, he attacked that cellmate and gouged out the guy's eyes. And I don't know if he permanently blinded him. I, I do believe that he had, the inmate that he attacked, had significant blindness after this assault. And then he strangled, somebody who had come to the guy's defense, he like strangled him to the point of passing out. But neither of those guys died. But at court, what this offender once told me, and this is how he became de facto, he told me that the judge looked right at him at sentencing time and said, give him 25 years for each eye. So he got an additional 50-year sentence onto an already extremely lengthy sentence. So he became life without de facto because it, it his, what we call an earned release date or an early release date, an ERD, it goes by both. He would have been like 117 years old. So he became life without based on that last assault. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and we talked about, we talked about the assault of that in uh, that Sally. We talked about the murder of the other Sally in County jail. We never spoke about his, what we call an index offense. So the offense that like first leads you into prison. And I asked him once, you know, why don't we ever talk about that? And he immediately shut down face like completely changed I mean, if you could like be right, like raising a blind with him is how his, how quickly his face would change sometimes in, in therapy or at any of our interactions. So the, the blinds closed, the face changed and he goes, because I don't want to talk to you about that. And I said, well, you must know that I know what you did. So he 
violently raped and sodomized his... I don't know if she was his ex-wife yet. I think they were, like, separated. He had run away or escaped or absconded, whatever you want to call it, from work release, which is, you know, lowest custody you can pretty much get. You're, like, you go out to work in the community, you come back to sleep at a facility. And so he had absconded from his job at work release, gone to her house, attacked her, tied her up, brutally raped and sodomized her, and stabbed her close to 30 times. And when he got up to take a shower, so this is like setting a trend, right? Because he showered after the next murder. So he shat while he was showering. She was able to untie herself, crawl to a neighbor's house. Oh my God, she was still living. She is alive still. And so she was able to phone, the neighbors were able to phone 911 for her and she miraculously lived. So that's what sent him to county. But he was already on work release, meaning he was already in the system. Yep. That was not his first offense. It was not his first offense, but it was his most egregious up to that point. I don't believe he'd had any assaults. I don't remember his criminal history, his full criminal history off the top of my head. Um, but that was certainly the most egregious act. And then, you know, when he got out of the shower, she wasn't there anymore. And he literally just left and, like, was walking down the road when he got picked up. Got put in county. County is four to a cell most of the time. This is a fucking crazy story, too. So, as he was attacking one of the cellmates, he was making a shit ton of noise, right? And the officers, like, uh, like, I don't know, uh, like, hit the, hit the button to listen in on the cell. So, we have microphones in all the cells. We don't have cameras in all of our cells. And they, they pinged in, right? And said, like, oi, what are you doing? You're making a shit ton of noise. And the guy goes, we're just playing a game. Like, while he is strangling someone to death. And that was enough. That was enough for the officers. And they said, okay, we'll keep it down. Like, what game are you playing? Yeah. Instead of just walking down. I mean, this individual, right? And, And we could, this is the thing. I will fiercely defend a lot of what we do in corrections. And then, of course, there's always going to be those individual stories where you're like, wow, we really fucked this one. Mm -hmm. This is one of those. So, so unfortunately, right, he was murdering somebody while two other people sat on their bed and watched. I mean, that's how terrifying this guy was. And he was. I remember calling him scary once. And he didn't talk to me for like a week after that. Like, that is where I, I... He had come up to the door. Okay, I should give some context to this story. See, now I'm on a tangent. <laughs> so he'd come up to his cell door. And in max custody, I have the ability to turn their lights on outside of their cell door. But they also have the ability to turn their light on and off. That's for safety and security, right? If a staff member is like, hey, I need you to turn the light on. And they're on their bunk and they're not getting off. I can flip it on. So I was signing. When you do rounds, you sign these like forms on their door. That just says, like, stopped in for rounds or, like, spoke about something. And just to, like, prove, like, there's some staff interaction taking place. We write counts on there as well, like, when there's a prison count. Oh, yeah. If it's not documented, it didn't happen. We oh. know that one. That, that is our favorite thing in prison, too. Yeah. If you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. That's in prison, too. That's yeah. in healthcare. <laughs> and so it was dark in his cell. And he, like, wandered up to the cell front window while I was signing the form. And so when I looked back up, I was like, oh, my God, you scared me. And he he goes, and he started laughing. And he's like, oh, I did? And I go, well, I mean, you are kind of scary. And, again, it's like the blinds mm. closed. And that was the worst thing I could have said to him. And he, like, just froze me out. And he didn't talk to me for about a week. And finally I I had to kind of corner him. He had come out for a programming. So programming in max custody looks like we'll let you eat out of your cell with a group of peers. You're all still restrained at that point, depending on your step level. But you get to watch TV. And so I asked the officers, I said, it it had been about a week. And I had said, hey, would would you mind leaving him in last so I can just go and talk to him privately? Because unfortunately all his peers on the the tier also heard me call him scary right like it was a total i was a baby therapist 
he is he was like my first client and we all have that first client where you like learn all your things with mm-hmm. um really so, cool. there's a there's a boundary crossing yeah there. so <laughs> he he was my lesson learned client and in a lot of ways and so i i kind of cornered him and i came in i said hey do you have a just a minute to chat and he said sure and I said, I, I just fell on my sword. I was like, I apologize. That was inappropriate of me to say. You had scared me. I'm sorry that I was so easily startled. You know, I would like you to turn your light on next time. But I shouldn't have said that. And I, I am sorry. I do not find you scary. And I don't find our time together scary. And so thankfully, we were able to move past that moment. And we did. We always had a great therapeutic alliance, great client therapist, just connection to the point where like staff even as he was graduating max custody again lessons learned client i had multiple staff come up to me once and say like we're just concerned with how much time you spend with him and i said i sat back and i said hey i'm new i'm new to prison so tell me what you're seeing explain to me what you're seeing i had no reason to get defensive so i didn't because I hadn't done anything wrong, but I was like, hey, what are you seeing that has you concerned? Mm -hmm. And I sat down with multiple staff and and asked for feedback. And they said, hey, the thing that we see is that you just spend more time at his cell front than you do anybody else's. And I was able to say, because he's my only client who is currently engaging in therapy. You're right, we do have favorites sometimes. Like, Mm -hmm. when people are like, I'm gonna do the bare minimum so I can get out of here. Yeah, you're right, that's a quick conversation. But when somebody's like, hey, yeah, let's Monster talk about engaged. this stuff. And yeah, I'll do your therapeutic homework. Well, um, and it is always good, as we all know, you know, going through, you know, our own therapeutic alliances with any patient or client that we have. It's always a good reality check to be able to hear those, you know, insights from other people, what they're saying. Because it's true, you know, we're human too. And we do need those reminders of where our boundaries lie. And yeah. You know, might be crossing them. Yeah, and being able to reflect on that. Yep, a lot of growth. Yeah, so after those conversations, I remember sitting down with him and I said, hey, so it's it bothers staff, and I'm a little concerned too, um, that you only seem to talk to me. And he goes, well, do I have to talk to other people? And I said, you don't have to do anything, but it would be beneficial if you spoke to other staff because eventually you're going to graduate to a lower custody level and I will no longer be your primary therapist. And I remember him like laughing and going, I can't just like shrink you down and put you in my pocket and take you with me. And I go, no, and it's creepy that you said that. (laughs) And that was during an individual therapy session. And so like we both laughed about it, but I did. I said, no, and that was creepy. Don't say that again. (laughs) And he just laughed and was like, okay. So I, I did gradually start introducing other staff into our sessions because I was trying to get him to a point where like hey like i will not follow you to your next lower custody i will stay in max while you graduate and so it just kind of worked for us but every time i saw him after that i would ask him how he was and check in with him and yeah always enjoyed our interactions despite being one of the most fascinating sociopaths i have ever sat within feet of well and i think that's the thing i mean you you're in this work for a reason, right? I mean, people are incredibly fascinating to all different degrees. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I mean, while being a DMHP is not what I would do forever, I, I participated in that job for one year and seeing people in the height of whatever mental health psychosis or crisis they are in, it is fascinating thing to experience and try to relate to and try to like get get on that same level and try to shift and and work with someone in that space yeah so yeah you learned so much you learned so much I did and I mean there's a lot of people who probably have different stories about their you know lessons learned client that ended not so well I was really happy that I was surrounded by great mentors, great supervisors. Um, And I just, again, I never got defensive. I was always willing to accept feedback, to learn, to listen. I didn't know shit about maximum custody when I got there. (laughs) Like When an officer was like, hey, so next time I have the cuff port open, because I had dropped something on the ground, and I went to go pick it up while the cut, so we're on the tier, and the cuff port to the cell door is open because we were exchanging something. I don't know what any of those words mean. 
Okay, so there's a cell door and a cuff. What's a tear? <laughs> a tear is like, oh shit, how would I explain this? So it's like, I almost said alley, and I'm like, that's not what it is. It's like a hallway. Okay. So if you're like thinking about like walking into an apartment building. Okay. So it's a hallway full of doors. Okay. Cell doors. Gotcha. And so um, that's not a tear. <laughs> No, it's not an apartment. Sorry. So it's a tier. You do tier checks. You do tier visits. That's where they do count, right? So like you're walking a tier. It's very much like prison lingo. You're right. And so we were doing like book exchange because access to reading materials. And like access, the library. Yep. So access to reading materials, access to a legal library are um, human rights. Every single inmate or offender within corrections uh, I think actually across the world is allowed these things. And so we did uh, like a library cart. Um, and we would wheel it around and they could like see titles and pick out books. Well, I dropped something on the ground while we were exchanging books with someone. And I went to go pick it up while the, the cuff port and the cuff port is this like tiny little window box that we can pop open to like pass meds through pass anything through and it's where essentially they put their so when we're cuffing them up they'll put their hands behind their back put them through the cuff port we apply wrist restraints and then we open the cell door and so it's a whole process but i bent down to pick something up i stood back up the officer closed the cuff port turns around to me on the tier and goes, don't ever do that again while I have the cuff port open. And in that moment, I was like, okay. And we finished that tier. And when we got off the tier, I looked at him and I said, don't ever correct me in front of inmates like that again. I said, I'm, I'm here to learn and listen. Absolutely. But don't ever make me look like an idiot in front of them. That doesn't help me either. Yeah. And he goes, got it. And so, and, and you know, that officer, he doesn't work for us either anymore, but him and I are really good friends to this day and that was a good moment for both of us because I was like hey I'm down for feedback mm -hmm. but don't fucking do that in front of inmates like they also need to take me seriously and not think I'm this green can't be newbie yeah. yeah so yeah so that was one of my interesting stories too I have so many probably so for eight years yeah. I mean this is gonna have to obviously be more than one episode I mean, Unless like, you're just going to be here for the next five hours because... I know, because, like, where do you go now? I'm like, there's for just, a series. Hallie's just sitting over there. I just... I'm looking at you, and I just see this, like, almost like this, um, like, wash of just blankness because there's just, like, so much going on behind you for, like, <laughs> no, what do I say next? What I also I, see you mad scribbling over what there. What question do I have? <laughs> now what? Where do I go? Do I go here? Do I go there? I know. Well, I haven't spoken in, like, any linear concept. <laughs> <laughs> format or concept I'm just like blah, 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 and tangent this and tangent that well and that's that's what you're saying Katie is me deciding do I even want to ask I know, the what original doors, questions what doors do I open <laughs> but now I don't because I I want to keep this particular talk in the vein of learning about even the basics of Department of Corrections and yeah. your experiences in that and then I would love to do follow up if you're open hell yeah and or even today, and we can break this up into different series, about your opinions on the death penalty, your opinions on psychosis and mental illness within the prison system. Sure. Your, I mean, this is all the things I'm scribbling down. Oh, we have another you bottle know, of Shawshank wine. Shawshank and Redemption. <laughs> you know? Like, portrayals I in movies. I fucking love Shawshank. <laughs> I mean, all I can think of is Brooks as you're talking about the library. Yeah. Well, and so is... It's not Brooks. Who's, or it might be. Brooks Who? is the old man librarian that is killed he the himself one? when he got released. Yeah, so it was Brooks. Yeah. So I've got it on DVD. You can borrow it. I don't have a DVD player. Dear God, that just <laughs> made me feel fucking old as shit, and you're older than me. I'm well, still got a VHS it help? player. Don't I was going to say, will it help if I still have a VHS player? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. um, okay, so yeah, Brooks is very much, so when we talk about somebody like releasing who's become institutionalized, yeah, right? I did work with one individual. He committed a sex offense in, gosh, he was like, I don't know, like 20 years old, maybe. And I met him when he was in his 60s. So he had been down for like 40 years. And this is somebody who committed a sex offense while severely 
mentally ill. He was having an absolute like break in psychosis. He was in um, the military. He was on leave. He had a complete psychotic episode, attacked an older woman, brutally attacked her with a knife. I think he he cut her cheek, if I remember, like very significantly to the point where like it made me think of like the Joker, you know, mm. cuts on your face. Oof. And then he might have also cut part of her ear off. But he was sentenced to rape, even though he argued that, like, when I met him, right, he's like, I never raped her. Because he he would talk about penetration as, like, Mm -hmm. I never penetrated her. And Mm -hmm. I go, so did your naked genitalia touch her naked genitalia? And he goes, yes. And I go, that's rape. Like, that is the definition of rape. It has nothing to do with penetration at the end of the day. And so it was weird that when, again, I met him in his 60s, and he had attacked a woman in her 60s. 40 years prior and I had a moment in the middle of a group therapy a sex offender treatment therapy group and I remember thinking well that was a horrible therapeutic thing to do but out of nowhere I go so your victim is probably dead because the thought like literally it popped into my brain for the first time ever it just popped right out of my mouth and I thought well that was fucking ridiculous learn to hold your tongue um (laughs) but let's call this learning the hard way yeah right I mean (laughs) Hey, like I, we all I must. I mean, my fire. well, and I will never admit to being like a perfect therapist. So yeah, like I don't have any problem being like, oh, I really fucked up at this moment. Any therapist that admits that is not perfect, right? Because there's no such thing. No, well, it's concerning because there's absolutely no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, your victim is probably dead, and he froze, and so did all his peers, and everybody got real quiet, <laughs> and and he goes, um. Yeah, probably. And I was like, well, yeah, she probably isn't like 106 right now. And he goes, no, probably not. Um, But he ended up finishing treatment. The parole board did agree to release him. And I always thought of Brooks from Shawshank Redemption because I just thought this person has been down for 40 years. He has no fucking idea how to manage the technology advancements that exist. Oh, my gosh. Alone. Yeah. And so, like, I have no idea what happened to him, right? Like, once people went off my caseload you got enough fucking work to worry about you're not worried about the people you you're not assigned to anymore and so i don't know what became of him i don't even know if he's still alive but very mentally ill and i do remember testifying in front of the board uh the parole board with him or what so in our state we call them the isrb so it's the indeterminate sentence review board and that's a whole other episode too probably (laughs) (laughs) but i i testified in front of the parole board and he had a lot of like religious delusions. And so I remember one of the pro board members, because they're appointed by the governor. So there's five, which like there's four and then there's a fifth alternative in case there's a tie vote. But she was so good with the mentally ill individuals. And she goes, does God want you to hurt anybody? And he goes, no, ma'am. No, he doesn't. I misunderstood him 40 years ago. And she just like kept bringing it back to like, hey, you know, we're not going to feed into the delusion, but religion at that point was really uh, acting as a protective factor, finally. And so we did. We just leaned into it extra hard. And he's like, no, no, ma'am. God does not want me to hurt anybody. And she was like, okay, will you remember that while you're out? Like, and what will happen if you start to misunderstand God again? And I just sat back at that pro board hearing thinking, this is the coolest conversation I've ever listened to. <laughs> She was just meeting him where he was at. And yeah, I mean. Just social work perspective from this. From the mouth of a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, this is an ongoing conversation joke that we have. That she's therapist versus social workers. (laughs) That's another episode. That's a whole other episode. I don't know if we're ready to go down that road. With more wine. (laughs) So much more wine. Well, we are right at about an hour with this conversation, so I want to (laughs) offer, I don't have a limit on my, I will break things up into more episodes, I will stop, pause if we need a break, I will stop this episode and we can continue on another day, whatever you are up for. Let's take a pause. Let's take a pause, all right. All right, listeners, as you can tell, there's way too much conversation to be had in just one episode. So we're going to break this up. There's at least another hour of this part of the conversation, and I can certainly foresee a much more in-depth conversation about many other 
topics as we were bobbing and weaving in between subjects here. So hopefully that'll continue on in the future. Thanks again so much to Marie and Katie for being my guests today. If you have questions or thoughts or ideas on any of these conversations, you can email me at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at someDayDeadPC. Please take care of yourselves out there. It's been a rough one. I can't believe it's already March of 2023, halfway through. Remember to live because someday we'll all be dead.